Well, I'm glad you're here and having as much fun as I am. Uh, we are in our series Unstuck, but before I jump into the message for today, I want to make you aware of something that's coming up in just a few weeks that you're going to want to be a part of, uh, and that is on September the 8th, Sunday morning, September the 8th, we are going to have a guest speaker, and if you've been around for a while, you know this guest speaker. His name is Chris Dew, and Chris is from uh, a church in South, uh, South Carolina. He is a longtime friend of mine and a longtime friend of the Vineyard. Uh, Chris has overcome a heroin addiction through following Jesus, and he has got a story of hope that is so powerful, and he is so fun to listen to, and um, and I just believe that God's going to do some powerful things here on September the 8th, and the reason I'm sharing that with you right now is for a few reasons. One, you need to be here. You need to put it on your calendar. You need to make sure if that's a weekend that you're like, oh, I don't know, I might be out of town, whatever. No, plan on being here on September the 8th. There's not one of us that has not been affected by the opioid crisis. Uh, and I think what Chris is going to share with us is going to speak to you. And the second reason I'm telling you this is that every single one of us knows somebody who needs to hear Chris's message. And so plan on it now. This gives you like three or four weeks to plan and invite and make lists and pray and bring people. And when you come on September the 8th, bring some people with you. It will help them. And that's why we're bringing Chris in is to help our community and to, to reach our community with this message of hope. The third reason I'm telling you this is because on Saturday night at Heritage Port, we are sponsoring a youth event. It's a back to school bash and battle of the bands for youth. And Chris is going to do like a 20-minute TED Talk there speaking to this issue in that environment. And if you would like to help out with that, we need your help. And you can sign up to help out in your program on your Connect card. There's a, I want to volunteer to help out. We need people to set up, tear down, and help with all kinds of things. And if you have a few minutes after the service, if you would, Gail Adams, who is coordinating it, will be up in the mezzanine area of the balcony. Just go up the stairs and talk to Gail, and she'll help get you oriented and ready to go for that. And that's going to be just a really powerful thing. That's Saturday night, the 7th, and then Sunday morning he'll be here. So you got it? Say yes. Okay, good. We'll move on then. All right. So unstuck. The whole idea behind this series is that it's sooner or later, at one point or another, um, we end up stuck. We end up stuck emotionally. We end up stuck financially. We end up stuck relationally. We get off the road of life and into the ditch and we find ourselves stuck. And it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Nobody likes to be stuck. We weren't made to be stuck. God doesn't want us to spend our lives stuck, but he knows that we'll end up there every once in a while. But it's a bad feeling. So uh, for the last three weeks, I haven't been preaching uh, two and a half of those weeks, my son Deuce and I went on a motorcycle adventure to the Rocky Mountains uh, with a group of friends. We flew into Salt Lake City, Utah, got on our, it, it, this is the group of friends. Did we put the picture up? There's a the group of friends. So we ended up getting, uh, uh, oh, that is not flattering. Anyway, we ended up, ended up getting on our motorcycle. Here's a picture of our bike. It's an adventure motorcycle. Picture of our bike. There we go. Adventure motorcycle with camping gear, and we disappeared into the Rocky Mountains, made it all the way through Wyoming and Montana and Alberta and British Columbia, and just hung out in the Rocky Mountains for two and a half weeks and just went to some really remote places. At one point when we were in Alberta, uh, it occurred to me that it was about two hours to the nearest paved road and probably another hour to hour and a half to a gas station. Like, we were remote. And if we got... You ever have anticipatory anxiety? It's kind of like, well, 
if we get a flat tire or if the engine goes out or if a bear jumps out in front of us, we're hosed. I mean, we're stuck. I mean, we're not just a little stuck. We're three and a half hours from anywhere stuck, stuck. And I kind of got this pit in my stomach thinking about it. I'm like, better not to think about that and push that aside and kept going. Well, at one point, Deuce and I were, we, we went on, off on our own for a couple of days and we, we pulled into Idaho. Anybody ever been to Idaho? Idaho is a cool state, very diverse, but there's, um, there we are. Uh, and we got onto this highway and the speed limits out there are amazing. Like 80 miles an hour and everybody's going 90. It's fantastic. I mean, just saying, I like to go fast. But at any rate, that's not the highway because at the moment I didn't have the presence of mind to to take a picture. But um, it was a four-lane highway, and we're going down the highway really fast. And, um, and, you know, it's long distances between exits and everything. And it's just there's tumbleweeds and sagebrush, and um, and it's like 9,500 degrees. And we're cruising along, and Deuce taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, you're going to run out of gas. And I said, no, we're not going to run out of gas. I've done the math. My bike gets 55 miles to the gallon. Not at 85 miles an hour, it doesn't. All right, so we're cruising down the highway. We've got two miles to make it to the next exit, right? And the, and the bike goes, and we run out of gas on the side of the highway. Now, two miles, that's not bad. It's 95 to 100 degrees. The vultures are starting to circle, right? We had just stopped at a rest area where it said, warning, rattlesnakes in the area. Well, we're going to die out here, right? We had this moment of panic because it was two miles to the next exit, and we were, we were stuck. That feeling of being stuck, it doesn't feel good, does it? Thankfully, it was only about five minutes, and a guy came by with a, uh, some four-wheelers in tow, and he had gas. And he gave us gas, which was a good thing, because the next exit where I was going to get gas didn't have a gas station. It would have been a 40-mile walk to the next gas station. But it all worked out. But for me, it was like that moment of, oh, yeah, this is what it feels like to be stuck. It doesn't feel good. And it's not where God wants us to spend our lives. Now, this week, we're going to look at being stuck in religion. Um, and so, if you brought your Bible, if you brought a paper Bible, I'm assuming you probably know how to get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. So, turn there or use the index or whatever, get to 1 Cha- Samuel chapter 4. If you didn't bring a paper Bible, pull out your device, open up a Bible app, and you can press on 1 Samuel chapter 4. And that's where we're going to be today. But I need to set this up a little bit. The Israelites, the Israelites have this enemy in the promised land uh, called the Philistines. And they just keep, they can't seem to get past the Philistines. It just keeps going back and forth and back and forth. And the Philistines win, and the Israelites win, and they're constantly battling one another. And, and so that's where we find them today in 1 Samuel 4. They're, they're, they're going to battle with the Philistines. But the Israelites have this phenomenal history. And I'm going to give you a quick overview. If you want all the details, you have to go read the book of Genesis, and you can get kind of the nitty-gritty details. This is a 60,000-foot view of the history of Israel up to this point. So the Israelites start with a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is hanging out in the desert, desert in a place called Ur, and God shows up and begins to have a series of conversations with Abraham and develops a friendship with Abraham and promises Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation and he's going to give him a land. We call it the 
promised land, right? And so that's the promise to Abraham, which is amazing because Abraham doesn't have any kids. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, are beyond childbearing years. And, uh, you know, right, okay. But Abraham trusted God. And sooner or later, Abraham and Sarah miraculously have a son. They name him Isaac. Isaac has uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the focus of the story. Jacob has this encounter with God where he's talking with God, and God gives him a new name, and that new name is Israel. And this is where we get the nation of Israel from. It's from Jacob. Jacob, the name that God gave Jacob is Israel. Now, Jacob's 12 sons, he has 12 sons, those become the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, is this making sense? Say yes, you're getting this, you're following along with me. All right, so during Jacob's lifetime, there is a famine in the land, and Jacob and his 12 sons and the rest of the family, the 70-some and all, they go to Egypt because Egypt had prepared for the famine. And they go there, and there's food, and they're prospering, and they're doing well. They have favor with the Pharaoh. Everything is going great until the Pharaoh dies. The Pharaoh dies. The new Pharaoh looks at the Israelites and says they would make great labor. And so they, he enslaves the Israelites, this family that grows and grows and grows in slavery for 400 years. They live in slavery, and they, they grow to millions of people over that 400-year period of time. Well, eventually God sends Moses. You've heard of Moses. He sends Moses to set his people free. And so Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no. And then God sends a famine. And there's a miraculous famine after miraculous famine. And finally, God gets the Pharaoh's attention. And the Pharaoh's like, get out of here. And you've, maybe you've heard the story. He sends, sends them and they... They go and they have to cross the Red Sea and God parts the Red Sea, this miraculous thing, and rescues them again as they head out of Egypt. And then they're in the Sinai Peninsula in the desert and Moses leads them to a place called Mount Sinai where he goes up and meets with God and has this conversation with God. And you saw the movie, Charlton Heston comes down with the two tablets, you know, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down off the mountain and he's got the, this gift for them because because they don't know how to live without being slaves. They don't know how to live. They, 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 for 400 years, somebody has told them what to do, where to be, when, and how. And, and, and so they don't have any guardrails. They don't know what works in life outside of that system. And God gives them this law and says, if you live by this, it'll bring blessing to you. If you live by this, and these guardrails, man, it's going to set you up to be prosperous and to, to be a civil society and all that. And so God gives them the gift of the Ten Commandments. Well, they take the Ten Commandments and they build a box for the Ten Commandments. We call it the Ark of the Covenant. And it's about a three foot by about two feet. It's covered in gold. It's got a lid with some angels on the top that are all covered in gold. And it becomes the center of their religious practice. Um, and, and so it's not God, but it contains the Ten Commandments and a couple other relics that they, they put in there. And, and it is, and then, and, and it's powerful. I mean, you've heard the stories. You've seen the movie, right? That biblical movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, where it melts the faces off the, the, the Germans, right? All right. That didn't happen, by the way. That was just fiction. But that's kind of the, the reputation that this, this ark has. I mean, it's powerful. They've carried it into battle. When they, when they came to the promised land, 
after wandering in the desert for 40 years, you're, you're thinking, okay, 400 years in slavery and 40 years wandering in the desert. Boy, God moves slow. Sometimes he does. All right, but he was, he was accomplishing some things. And, um, and so they, God brings them to the edge of the promised land, which is the Jordan River. While the Jordan River is at flood stage, there's nothing strategic about coming to invade a country at flood stage when you have to cross a river. But God brought them there and he told them, Look, here's what I want you to do. Take, take the Ark of the Covenant and have the priests carry it out ahead of everybody into the water. And so they walk out into the river at flood stage and the river backs up and it dries out in front of them and the whole nation crosses over into the promised land on dry ground. All right. Well, then he takes them to Jericho. Jericho is a fortified city with a huge wall and uh, the Israelites... They don't know how to fight. They were slaves for 400 years, and then they've been backpacking for the last 50, 40 years, right? And, and so they're like, well, what's the plan? And God's like, here's the plan. I'm ta- talking to Joshua, and he says, have them walk around to put the ark out in front. Have them walk around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, we'll walk around seven times and then blow some horns, and the walls will come tumbling down. Guys, this is a horrible plan. I mean, let's just be honest. This is not a good strategy to take a city unless God told you to do it. And then it makes sense. You know, for some of us, we think if we can come up with a really bad plan or, or something that's just silly and doesn't make any sense and then expect God to come through for us, that somehow is faith. That's not faith. That's silly. Stop it. All right. Faith is doing what God told you to do, whether it makes sense or not, and trusting him for the results. And that's what the Israelites were doing. Now, just, just a clarifying point there. So anyway, the ark becomes kind of the centerpiece of the, it's not God, but they believe the presence of God is, is present in the ark, and, 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 and it becomes the center of their whole religious practice. They built a temple or a, a tabernacle, a mobile, mobile church around it and, and everything else. And so here are the Israelites. Years later, they're going back and forth with the Philistines. And now they're going into battle with the Philistines again. And we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 4, verse 1, and it says this. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. This is a devastating day for the nation of Israel. I mean, they're a small enough country that every community is going to be burying somebody. There's bad news coming home to every neighborhood. 4,000 brothers Fathers, dead sons, and they are reeling. This isn't supposed to happen to the people of God. They're the people of God. Why? why, How could they lose to a bunch of pagans? God's supposed to give them victory. And that's the question that they're asking. The elders gather around that evening, and and, uh, in verse 3 it says, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? You ever ask that question? 
Probably not about Philistines. That's very, very unusual around here. But have you ever asked the question, God, why is God against me? Now, I know that's not the bumper sticker or the magnet that you have on your refrigerator. You know, I've got great things for you, declares the Lord. That's the one you got. You don't have. Why is God against me on there? But you've had times where if we got really honest in church, you'd be like, God, why? Why the events of this last year? Why am I just barely getting by? I don't know if I will. Why did you let him die? Why did you let her get sick? Why did you let my business fall apart or me lose my job? God, why are you against me? That's the question they're asking. They are demoralized. Then someone speaks up in the leadership circle. There's a, someone has this brilliant idea. This is the game-changing idea. It says, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. The ark was living in Shiloh at the time, and it's not that far away. Like they could get there and back before morning. So let's go get the ark of the covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies so that God will give us success. If we get the ark, we put the ark out in front like in Jericho, like when we cross the Jordan River, we're going to win. It's a game changer. Let's go get the box. The focus of their religion. They find religion in the midst of the battle, right? And it says, so the people sent men to Shiloh and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty who is enthroned between the cherubim. Cherubim is a fancy word for the angels on the top. God's presence was there. And Eli's two sons. Now, Eli is the chief priest. All right, his two sons are, are kind of his right-hand guys. Well, right-hand, left-hand guy, I guess. But anyway, they are the heir to the, the chief priest's role. They, they've got the big dogs there. It's a bonus. The, the priests are there. They've got the ark, the, you know, the, all the religious, not just the ark, but the, the guys who know how to use it. You know, they're there. It's all good. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who shall be referred to as Phineas and Ferb for the rest of this message. All right, so Phineas and Ferb were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God, and they were going to do it all. You just totally lost that. All right, so this is a game changer. And the people of Israel, says in verse 5, when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. This wasn't God shaking the ground. This was 30 to 50,000 people shouting so loud with such faith and such intensity. They so believed that God was on their side because they had the box that they shouted and they went from demoralized and curled up in the fetal position to believing with everything they had that the victory was theirs because they had God. They had the box, and it shook the ground, and it also woke up the Philistines. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? <laughs> They're supposed to be like going home. We just handed their butts to them yesterday. What are they excited about in the middle of the night? What could be going on? And so they send some spies over, and they see what's going on, and they see that the, that the ark is there, and the Philistines have a very, they don't have a good understanding of the Hebrew God. 
See, for them, they had a bunch of little G gods. They had a god of this and a god of that and a god for everything. And, 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 and the god, their gods were, were the, the images and the idols that they would build and they would worship those. And so they saw the Ark of the Covenant, which wasn't God, but they thought, well, that is God. And so you can hear their confusion in, in this passage. Here it says, when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said, and they despaired. It says, oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. See, the Philistines had heard about what God had done in Egypt. They had heard about what God had done at the Jordan River and the Red Sea and the Walls of Jericho, and as Israel went and recaptured all the land that had been taken from them while they were gone, and God just gave them victory after victory after victory. They knew the reputation of Israel's God, and now, at least from their perspective, God was in the camp, and it was over for them. They despaired. And the Israelites knew the stories of their God. And they thought, wow, well, if we put the ark out in front, God is with us, and we will have victory. It's, 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 it's a foregone conclusion, and they believed that with everything they were, so much so that they were so excited and they shouted so loud that it shook the ground and it woke up the Philistines. And the Philistines are freaked, and now they're ready to go home. And this is when, at least the, as the, the picture unfolds in my mind, you ever see Braveheart, you know? So this is... Uh, you know, guy rides out on a horse with a Scottish accent and green paint on his face. And, and, uh, William Wallace, Philistine, I think was his name. Anyway, and he says this, he did this, Philistines need a pep talk. He says, be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so they did. And they went to battle. And so, so the Philistines fought and the Israelites, now, I'm going to stop there because we all know what happened, right? The Israelites had the box. They won. They, they put the box out in front, and God gave them victory over their enemies. It was, it was a foregone conclusion. They thought it was anyway. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were... Oh, wait a second. They were defeated. Not just defeated... Every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was so great that Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. But not just that, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And not just that, but Phineas and Ferb were killed. The whole, the whole next generation of their religious orders, dead. They found religion in the midst of the battle. So often we do the same thing. And they lost God. Have you ever done that? You know, you're, you're in a battle. You're in... Things are, are not looking good. Maybe it's the diagnosis of a loved one. Maybe it's uh, a job or situation or a business situation or a kid who's off the rails. I don't know, whatever it is. And you're like, you know what? I need to get some religion. I'm going to start going to church every time church is open. And that's not a bad thing. 
or I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to start giving so that God will, will do what I want him to do. And I'm, or I'm going to start reading my Bible every day, or I'm going to start, and hey, all of those things are good things if they're done in the right spirit. But when they're done to get God to do what we want us to do, what we want him to do, guys, that's religion. And that never works out very well. It never works out very well. Now, I hope that this passage disturbs the heck out of you. It's supposed to. It's supposed to. Like, whoa, where do we put this? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. Let's put this somewhere. Because it teaches us something so rich and so beautiful about God. And it wakes us up from playing religion. The Israelites found religion in the battle and they lost God. And this was a generational wholesale loss for them. You know, so, so often I hear people say, well, you know, this tragedy happened and I got religion and I started going to church and all the things that I mentioned and and it all went bad anyway. And, and, and really, that's what religion does. It, 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 it will always leave you disillusioned, confused, disappointed, and frustrated. My, uh, one of my mentors when I was younger was famous for saying over and over and over and over again that religion was a bad deal. I, I, I like to say it this way. Religion sucks. doesn't work. Now, I know some of you are thinking, isn't this a church? And aren't you a pastor? Some days. But that's the thing about Christianity. It's not about religion. It's never been about religion. It is about a relationship with the living God who loves us, made us, and desires more than anything else a relationship with us. And we can take all kinds of good practices and rituals and relics and everything else and completely miss the point. Religion is a bad deal. Religion is treating God like a good, a good luck charm. That's what the Israelites were doing here. Let's put the, go get the box. Let's put the box out front. We can't lose if we got the box. Like God's got to give us victory because the box is out in front. God's got to bless my life because I gave. God's got to give, bless my life because I go to church every Sunday. And we, and we think that if we go through the right ritual, somehow God has to do what we want him to do. But God isn't going to be played. Come on. You know better than that. You stop and think about it. See, religion, in religion, my focus is on what I can get instead of the giver. In, in, in this thing that Jesus came to make possible, focus is about a relationship, a friendship, a conversational friendship with your heavenly Father. And everything grows out of that. It's not about doing a bunch of stuff to win his favor. It's very different, isn't it? See, with religion, we come to God for success rather than surrender. It's gimme, 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 gimme. 
bless my thing, make my thing prosper, make my thing great. Instead of, I want to know you, God. You know, that's the point of prayer, you know, not to get what you want but to foster an ongoing connected relationship with your heavenly father. And yes, we can ask for things that we want along the way. We're encouraged to, you're not going to get everything you ask for. Just let you know, because there are times where God has something better for you and there's a bigger picture at play and he knows what it is and you don't. So don't expect that you're going to get everything you ask for, but we're encouraged to ask. I love Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. I think it paints a perfect picture of this dynamic. This is what it says. It says, do not be anxious about anything. All right. How are we doing with that? All right. We're not going to be honest in church. Okay. So here's the deal with that. How do you live that way? How how can you live in in life and not be anxious about anything? And I'll tell you how you do that. You live with such trust in a connected relationship with God, that whether you get what you ask for or not, whether your agenda is fulfilled or not, you're okay. Whether you even understand it or not, whether it's hard or easy, you're okay because you have got this thing, this relationship with God that is, it's okay. It's okay. You can live without being Anxious in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, so to be thankful, not demanding, present your request to God, so it's okay to present our request to God. And then this, get this, this is is awesome, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it's irrational. There are times where your peace should be completely rocked, and it won't be, because you know God, and he knows you. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, the picture that this passage paints is not, God, gimme, 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 do what I want you to do, bless my agenda. It's, God, I know you, I love you, I trust you. Here's what I would prefer, but Lord, you know, you got this, and I'm good. And it's a very different thing, isn't it? See, when you're just trying to get God to bless your thing, you will constantly be anxious and worried. And the requests are made from relationship, not from manipulation. That's different. That's very different. See, in religion, our prayers are, gimme, 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 instead of change me, shape me, help me to know you more. In a relationship, that's what it looks like. I mean, have you ever had anybody in your life that every time you saw them, they wanted something? Gimme, 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 gimme. Yeah, you'd probably run down the other aisle at Walmart to hide from them if you ran into them at the store, right? Heard that somewhere before. All right. So religion is treating God like a good luck charm. Religion is doing the right rituals with the wrong lifestyle. Doing the right rituals with the wrong lifestyle. The Israelites were jacked up at this point in their history. They were still worshiping God. They still had the ark, right? They were still doing sacrifices and and the festivals and all of that to some degree. They were trying to keep God happy, but they were also worshiping the gods of the Philistines, 
They were worshiping Baal, the god of success, who just by happenstance, part of Baal worship was child sacrifice. Well, that's not good. And Asher, the god of sexuality and fertility and temple prostitution and all this other horrible stuff. And, and so there's, rather than a relationship with God who loves them and made them to be in a relationship with them, they're just trying to keep God happy by doing his stuff, his rituals, and they're trying to keep these other gods around them that aren't even real happy by doing theirs, which leads them down. And they're living like the world around them instead of like people who are in a relationship with God. It's not a pretty picture. If we go back two, two chapters to 1 Samuel 2, God addresses Phine- or, uh, Eli the priest about Phineas and Ferb, his sons, right? And, and, and they were supposed to be the next chief priests, and his family was supposed to be the line of priests forever, right? But they weren't behaving very well. They were taking, they were taking advantage of the people who would bring sacrifices to the temple. They were taking the best for themselves and not leaving it for God. They were, they were sleeping with the women that would come there and taking advantage. I mean, it was, it was horrible. And they were just a reflection of the nation of Israel and how jacked up Israel was and how far from God's heart they had wandered. And they still had the rituals, but the lifestyle wasn't there. This is what God said to, to Eli. He said, Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your, I had promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Well, they didn't despise God with their lips. They were still the priests, right? But they got all this crap going on over here, this lifestyle that is not anything close to the heart of God. They were playing the game. They were playing religion, and so was the nation. And God was not going to be played. They're treating God like a good luck charm. And they were going through the right rituals, and they had the box. They had the box. But they had lost their way their relationship with God. See, if you treat God like a good luck charm, prepare to be disappointed. If you're living life like hell all week, coming to church on Sunday morning because God has to forgive you and you want him to bless your thing, man, you're going to end up really disappointed. The right life or the right rituals, wrong lifestyle. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's religion. You know, and religion will leave you angry at God when you don't get what you asked for. Because when you're in it for what's in it for you, and you don't get what's in it for you, you end up shaking your fist at God. What good is following you anyway? You know, the reality is there will come a time in your journey with, with God, where you will not get what you asked for. It happens. I think part of it is it's God taking us to a deeper place. And there are factors that we don't completely understand. God does answer prayers, but sometimes not the way we want them to. 
And if you're just in it for what's in it for you, if you're just playing religion, if you're stuck in religion, you are going to be so disappointed. And you will find yourself shaking your fist at God and walking away because you've been playing. And God won't be played. And it's okay to ask for what we want for along the way. But we have to hold hold it with open hands and always say, God, but you know the bigger picture. <laughs> You're like, man, this is a real downer. Hold, hang in there. We're going places. This is just reality. This is reality. Now, religion sucks. Religion is a bad deal. And I wish that the rest of my message, no, I really don't wish, but I think some of you probably wish, can you give us the five steps to getting unstuck from religion? I can't. I don't have five steps. I have one step. Cut it out. Stop it. Get free from religion and find a relationship with God. It's what he created you for. The God of the universe loves you so much that he created you to be in a relationship with him, that he sent his only son down here a couple thousand years ago to die because the thing blocking your relationship with him was your sin and it penalty for it was death and Jesus paid it. So you didn't have to, so you can be in a relationship with God, not so that you can play religion and try and get God to get do what you want. They're very different things. They're very different things. What does God want? God wants a relationship, not ritual. Now, there are religious practices, prayer, going to church, reading your Bible, generosity. There are a variety of them that are very helpful at nurturing a relationship with God. But here's what happens. Either we face a battle in our lives or a crisis in our lives and we're like I got to get religion and so we start doing those things trying to get God to change the circumstances in our lives that's religion or maybe you've been in church for a really long time and those practices once meant something very profound to you they were profound in your life and connecting you with God and somewhere along the line your heart has drifted and now they are just rituals and your connection with God is blown up somewhere and you're just off doing your own thing, but you still have these habits and rituals in your life. Either way, it's not a great place to be. And guys, I don't tell you that to despair. It's nothing to despair about. It's something to wake up from. Now you know. Don't be okay with that. Don't live there. And like I said, I don't have five steps. Call out to God and say, I want a relationship with you. That's where it starts. He wants an ongoing, connected, conversational relationship with him. He wants to be part of every aspect of your life. That's the other thing that we tend to do when we're stuck in religion is I've got my church part of my life, and then I've got my business part of my life. And that looks completely different. Or my school part of my life, or my marriage part of my life, or whatever. And, 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 and God's not really in those parts of my life. My life. A relationship with God looks like God is in all of it. And if He's not, bring Him into your marriage. And if He's not, bring Him into your business. Stop asking Him to bless your business. Bring Him into your business and let Him lead your business or your marriage or your finances or your parenting or whatever else you're doing. It's very different.
than religion. God wants a relationship, not ritual. And God wants surrender. We say this this way around here. God, I want what you want more than I want what I want. You know you've crossed a milestone in your journey with God when you can say with authenticity, God, this is what I want. I want what I want, but I want what you want more than I want what I want. That's something to shoot for. That's part of the journey. Jesus models that for us in Matthew 26. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he is about to be crucified. He doesn't want to be crucified. Jesus, Did you know that? Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. He didn't want to be beaten within an inch of his life. He didn't want the skin ripped off of his body. He didn't want to be spit upon. He didn't want to be nailed to a cross. And he's in prayer. He is emotionally just torn up. And he's going to his father. Three times he does this and and it's physiologically affecting him. He is so emotionally wrestling. And he's like, God, plan B, plan C, plan F, plan Z. Come up with some other plan. I don't want to do this. But I want what you want more than I want what I want. I will. There's no other way. If this is what has to happen, I want what you want more than I want what I want. Your agenda, not my agenda. God wants surrender. And I'm telling you, there is nothing more freeing, nothing more beautiful, nothing that will rock your world and your faith and your relationship with God like surrender. It's a process. And it's a decision. God wants relationship, not religion, not ritual. God wants surrender. But if we're just trying to get God to do what we want God to do, if we're just playing God, playing him and trying to get him to bless our agenda or our life or our kids or our whatever, If we're just treating God like a genie in a bottle, you're going to be disappointed because religion will always leave you confused and angry and disappointed. You know, in in this respect, relationally, God isn't much different than anybody else. I mean, God wants to be with those who know him and want to know him, not those who want to use him. We don't like to spend time with people who want to use us, do we? We love to spend time with people who love us and who we love. And the good news of this message, guys, the good news of this message is that God loves you. That God made you not to be caught up in religion and trying to, to, to somehow get him to love you more, bless your thing more, but he made you to be in a ongoing, connected, conversational relationship with him, and he made it possible by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. Somehow, though, we end up dabbling in religion. You know, I think it's because we want what we want more than we want what he wants. 
And there are some of us here today. You're here because the wheels are coming off of life and you need to get religion. And you need to get God back on your side. And that's why you're coming. I'm glad you're here. God is glad you're here. You don't need to get religion. You need a relationship with Jesus. And there are some of us who've been coming to church for a very long time. And we know all the practices and the rituals. And it is dead inside of us. And we've been playing God. We've been playing him, trying to get him to bless our thing, give us whatever. And you know it, and it's killing you. I wish I had five steps. I have one. Call out to God and repent and ask him to bring you alive in him again. Tell him you want that relationship with him more than you want what you want, more than you want anything else. And as I pray to close us, I want you to pray and do whatever business you need to do with God. Because on the other side of this, guys, is life. On the other side, once you get free from religion and unstuck from religion, there is freedom, there is life, there is peace, there is a lot of fun. It's not always easy, but it's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, God, that you made us not for religion, but to be in a connected relationship with you. Lord, for those who are dealing with with just overwhelming situations and just looking for answers, God, would you meet them here, not with religion, but in a powerful relationship with you? Lord, and for those who have drifted over time, I pray that you'd fill them with such hope and life. God, that you'd bring us back and that we would know what it means to not be anxious about anything, what it means to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that we would know what it means to hold life with open hands and want what you want more than we want what we want. Lord, to know what a conversational friendship with you is all about. I pray that you bless us with that now. In Jesus' name. Amen.